the book of Acts. And verse, chapter 4 and verse 23. The book of Acts, chapter 4 and verse 23. Acts 4, verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by thy mouth, the mouth of thy servant David, has said, why did the nations rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the price of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet." And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who, was, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Shall we have a further word of prayer? Dear Lord, we want to thank you so much for your holy word. We want to thank you so much for giving it to us in our own tongue. We thank you, Lord, for those who laid down their lives and paid the ultimate price so that the word of God might be translated into English so that even the plowman might know what the scriptures say concerning the gospel. We thank you so much for Tyndale. We thank you, Lord, as he was just about to be executed, he cried out to you, open the eyes of the king of England. And within three years, there was a Bible to be set out in every pew, every church in the land. And the gospel came in mass to the people who were heading to a lost eternity. We give you all the praise and all the glory for preserving your word in our land. And here we are, Lord, with Bibles on every seat. Lord, we thank you for the cost of it, 
to every man. But our ultimate thanks goes to the Son of God who was willing to pay the price that there might be scripture in our hands and a gospel for us to proclaim. Lord, we worship you. We ask that, Lord, you would meet us in our need of you in this hour, that you would break the bread of life to us. Lord, we need you to do the feeding. We need you to do the speaking. We need you to do the quickening. We need you to give us the hearing. Father, we ask that the word spoken would be mixed with faith and that, Lord, you give oil upon the proclaiming of your word this morning. We need fresh oil. We need oil in our lamps. We pray that you deliver us from just plowing through another sermon. Lord, we ask of you we can, uh, for your strength. We acknowledge, O oh Lord, we don't want to rely on notes. We don't want to rely on our own thoughts. We want to rely on our living head. And we pray that you would grant us to know the anointing for the speaking of your word and the hearing of your word. And we will give you all the glory for doing this, Father. So grant clarity of thought as I speak, I pray, Lord, and as we hear, in Jesus' name, amen. I was on the phone to somebody that I'm getting to know a little bit, who is a pastor in Australia, and uh, is a very good brother, and uh, God willing, we're going to meet up, he's going to be coming over, God willing, next year and we'll hopefully speak to you a little bit more about that when our thoughts are more formed over the meetings and the Lord has given us something more of clarity of the way forward. But we did a three-way conversation between our brother in Brisbane and a friend of mine, Paul, some of you know Paul Williams, and who was here Tuesday. And we were together on the phone and uh, Adam was sharing with me, his name's Adam from Australia, he was sharing with me what the Lord had been laying on his heart recently to bring to the congregation. And he said to me, well, you know, I was going through something and the Lord just quickened me to go back to the book of Acts and to do a message on Acts 2 verses 41 right through to 46 and to go back to the pattern of the church in those verses. And he, then he said to me, and the interesting thing is, other pastors have been saying to me that the Lord's been showing them to do the same thing. And I said to Adam, well, that's interesting, because the message I just gave was on exactly the same verses. And we just realized that the Lord is just calling a few of us to get back to the pattern in the Word of God that God has given for the church. And to just rid ourselves of anything superfluous, you know, anything that is not really of the Lord, anything that we hold dear to that isn't of God, that isn't necessary, we can put it aside. All we need within the church is that which God has instituted for the church to have. And so we want to get right back to the pattern of God's order and God's purpose for the local assembly. Thank God he hasn't... Uh, caused us to be without knowledge concerning what he wants for the local church. God has purposes for the local assembly. And there's scriptures throughout the New Testament that show us the way the local assembly should function. 
And in the book of Acts, what we have is something of the pattern of the way the Lord initially caused the church to grow and to spread, to be nourished and fed and blessed in these early days after Pentecost. We see the church flourishing, don't we? And what it is for us is that these things are written unto us seeing something of the Lord's way with his people. God wants every church to follow him. Not a, not a, as it were, a denominational set approach, but rather the scriptures themselves. And to know the leading of the Spirit, to know the headship of the Lord Jesus. This is the way the church functioned in the early days, wasn't it? Well, the last time I think I spoke on, um, from the book of Acts was back in early July, during August, we had a bit of a break. I know people were coming and going, but I thought it would be right to get back to these words um, and, and the pattern that the Lord gives in the book of Acts now that we're into September. But just to remind you of some of those words that we mentioned last time we were together, those verses that our brother Adam also had on his heart, that says that then they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Well, those are the verses. They're very similar to the ones I've just read you from the book of Acts and chapter 5. Quite similar indeed in the way that the folk were acting one with another. And I believe the Lord has given us an account here of how the early church functioned so that we might know how the Lord wants us to function as his people together now. Now, I don't want to make doctrinal statements out of what we read concerning things in the book of Acts because that would be to, as it were, go beyond what I feel uh, I can share with you concerning the scriptures in, in Acts to do with the life of the early church. Because you see, dear friends, it says in this particular verse that all that believed were together and had all things in common. And you know, within the passage that I read to you, um, we read about how they uh, left, uh, sorry, they sold their houses um, if, and, 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 uh, and distributed all to each one. So I could make a doctrine of this and say, therefore, every one of you needs to sell all the houses you have, all the, you know, if you have any land, you've got to sell it, you've got to bring the money all to me, and I'll distribute it amongst the congregation. That would be to make a doctrine of those statements. That's not what the word of God is causing us to do in this part. But what we find here are principles that are in the word of God that are pointers as, as to a way in which we should be living. Okay? So, for example, it may be that we don't sell our houses and everything like that right now, but the Lord may want us to have a heart for another brother or sister in the same congregation that has less than we do. 
Do you see what I mean? It's applying the spirit of the letter. It's applying the spirit of the letter to the message. And that's what I'm seeking to do when we go through the book of Acts. Applying the spirit of the letter. The way God moved amongst his people is the sort of thing that we need to be looking for as we gather together in the house of God. If we try to make some kind of rigid doctrinal statement over something that isn't specific in Scripture, we can find ourselves becoming legalistic. In other words, we're adding extra rules onto what the Word of God says. We need to be careful of that. But we do want to flow within the spirit of the letter, don't we? And we do want to know the heart that these people have for one another, don't we? If we are to know a move of the Spirit of God, it's going to include some of these facets within our church life. It's inevitable because the very spirit that touched these early believers is the very spirit that is wanting to touch us. So we need to be changed. We need to be transformed. And it's one of the reasons why we need to be in church life, friends. There's no such thing as just a Christian living by themselves in their own ivory tower, is there? And not being part of a local assembly. You know, being by themselves and, um, and just sort of basically enjoying watching their favorite preacher on YouTube as their Sunday morning service. And then, but having no fellowship in the week. That's not the way the Lord has made us to be. The Lord has made us to be a people that are to be joined together, brought together, to be one with one another. And God wants us to know what it is to have that love for one another that is purely from himself. It's not something you can work up. It's not something I can work up. It's only something that the Lord can give us by his spirit. And as his spirit flows through us, it's shed abroad, he's shed abroad in our hearts the love of God for one another. That's, this is what the Lord wants for us as his people. It's part of the early pattern that we see in the book of Acts. So why is it important for us to consider the pattern or the way the Lord met with these early believers through the book of Acts? Why can't we just do an exposition right from Acts 1 to Acts chapter 28, taking five verses at a time each week? Well, we could and there'd be nothing wrong with doing that, except for the fact that's not my burden. My burden is that we look at the way the Lord dealt with the early church and just focus in on those passages where the Lord touched these believers and brought them together and how they were led and how they were, they were able to move forward in such a glorious way. I mean, when you consider the days they were living in, they weren't easy. They were hard times, but the church grew. And the glorious thing is the Lord is able to repeat his works of old. And we need to call on the Lord that he would even do so in our day. For so necessary it is for the gospel to once again go out with power into this community. There's people dying in sin. And there's people with no idea their left hand from their right. It's like Nineveh all over again, isn't it? We find such darkness encompassing us in, in so many areas. People don't know what is morally correct at all. The compass seems to have been completely thrown away. Well, that's what happens when you get rid of the word of God. You're in all sorts of trouble. And so we're in all sorts of trouble. But praise God, the Lord hasn't finished with his people. And the Lord wants a revived remnant for the last days in which we're coming into more rapidly. Well, 
the scriptures speak about divine order. And I just want to, before we look at these verses in Acts, speak about the importance of um, us knowing the order of God within the church. If you turn with me for a moment to Colossians chapter 2. You see, what we find is the Lord, by His Spirit, forming the church. And it's not a chaotic um, read, is it? It's not chaotic. When you read about the way the Lord does things, there's order to them, right? (laughs) It's not um, just a mishmash that the Lord puts together in some chaotic fashion. Not at all. Just look at the way the Lord um, has made creation. There's such order order to it and it's one of the signs that we that were part of a creation that has been created there's such order well i want to mention a verse that paul says to the church at colossi and he where he commends them for something he says in verse five for though i be absent in the flesh Yet am I with you in the spirit, rejoicing and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So he's rejoicing for two reasons with the church at Colossae. There were things that certainly they were going to need to deal with, but he thanks God, let me start with the second one, for their steadfastness in the faith in the Lord Jesus, but he begins by saying, by beholding your order. Now the word order, the Greek, means an arranging, an arrangement. He's rejoicing to see the arrangement that has been made. And within the house of God, there is an arranging that God is wanting to do amongst his people. He's wanting to fit you in personally in some place within the body that is not going to fit anyone else. He's wanting each one of us to know where we're fitted, where we're to function, how we're to function within the house of God. And that's part of his divine order. He has a purpose for everyone that he brings to this particular assembly. And it's for us to seek the Lord to know something of the place he has for us within the body in the local assembly. He's wanting to bring an arrangement in, something that's going to speak of order and peace. You know, when things are chaotic, the outcome of chaos is anarchy, isn't it? It's just everything's a mess, everything's in uproar. A bit like our children's bedrooms sometimes. Or you have a mess all around and you sort of think, oh, it's awful. It doesn't make you feel good when your house is all messy, does it? But when it's in order, when the furniture is in the right place, when you've hoovered up a few things off the floor, when you've put the things right in the bookshelf, when things are in their right place, what does it lead to? It leads to the fact that you can sit down and put your feet up with a cup of tea, doesn't it? And the fact is, it causes you to be at peace. But when you've got the mess all around the house, the last thing you feel like doing is just sitting down and just living in this mess. Well, God wants his house to be a house of order. I'm not talking about the chairs being arranged nicely or making sure that the tables are cleaned down, though these things are all very helpful and important. But the fact is the house of God has to do with the people of God. The Lord is wanting you and I to be in the order of God. And as we're in the purpose of God, and as the Lord 
hones us and we begin to know our place, we can know what it is to know something of a peace about us and a rest in the work. But it's knowing that kind of leading of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 40. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I've got the wrong verse there. It's really difficult, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, because it doesn't go that far. Oh, yes, it does. No, it's there. It's in my bio. I need to get my glasses on. Verse 39 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy. That means desire earnestly to prophesy. I wonder when the last time any one of us was really seeking God to enable us to prophesy in the house of God for the building up of all. May the Lord help us. But then he goes on to say, and forbid not to speak with tongues. That's why cessationism is wrong. Then verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. How many things? All things, all things. So where there's disorder... Where there's, in a sense, a cajoling overposition, where there is resistance to one another, where there is a kind of uh, a straining against one another, there's disorder. And there was disorder in the book of 1 Corinthians because they were mishandling the Lord's table and the gifts of the Spirit. Wonder what areas the Lord would say of us as a church. These things need to be put in order. Well, only the Lord can shed his light on these things, but I want to be one, I'm sure you do too, that want us to be a house that is in order. It was in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 that we read of the consequences of not having divine order. 1 sorry, Chronicles chapter 15. Do you remember the time when David and the people of God felt it was right, and it was right, to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the people of God? Now, reminding ourselves that the Ark of the Covenant speaks of the presence of God and something of the glory of God, which comes with the presence of God. That's what the Ark of the Covenant represents. And do you remember they got hold of the ark and they decided to bring it back on a cart rather than the way the law prescribed that the ark should be brought back in, you know, rather than the right way. They brought it back the wrong way. There was, there was holes for poles to go through. The ark of God was to be carried. But they put it on a cart just like the way the Philistines took the ark. And what a danger it is when we try to bring the presence of God back into the house of God in worldly ways. It creates a mess. And this is exactly, in a sense, what the Israelites were doing under David. They were bringing the ark back a wrong way. But there was another problem. And the other problem was they were bringing the, the people who were taking the ark were the wrong people. The ones that should have been uh, carrying the weight of responsibility should have been the Levites. And it didn't happen. And as a result, 
one of the servants of God died. And it's quite a serious and somber story. But David recaps on the mistake. And in verse 11 we read this of chapter 15. And David called for Zadok and Abitha the priests, and for the Levites, Uriel, Azariah, and Joel, Shemaiah, and Ilel, and Aminadab, and said unto them, Ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourself, both ye and your brethren, that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because ye did not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. Now that's a sobering thought, isn't it? But we've all got to know God's divine order in his house. And when we look at the way that the, the acts, in the Acts of the Apostle, we see how the Lord was able to move among the people of God in such a way because they were doing things according to the headship of the Lord Jesus. And they were under the leading of the Spirit of God. One other example, Exodus chapter 40, please. Exodus chapter 40, verse 17. This is right at the end of the book of Exodus where Moses is building the tabernacle. Now, you know the tabernacle, in a sense, speaks to us of the house of God. And uh, in, in, in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 17, we read this. And it came to pass in the month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. And Moses reared up the tabernacle and fastened its sockets and set up the balls thereof and put in the bars thereof and reared up his pillars. And he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent above upon it as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I've mentioned this before, but you find within these next few verses this constant refrain, as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses. We see it again in verse 21. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the covering and covered the ark of the testimony, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 23. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 24. And he put the candlestick in the tent of the congregation over against the table on the side of the tabernacle southward. And he lighted the lamps upon before the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. It's there again in verse 27, as the Lord commanded Moses. It's there again in verse uh, 29, and we find it again in verse 32. And then in verse 33, we read, And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the hanging of the court gate, so Moses finished the work. Have you got that? Moses finished the work. What was the result of Moses doing everything according to the set pattern of God? The answer is in verse 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There you have it. The glory of the Lord came upon the tabernacle. Now imagine if Moses had finished the work and then he'd have thought this is all wonderful. But there's another piece of furniture I think would look lovely in the most holy place. And really, if we just brought this other thing in, we'll keep everything else as it is. We'll keep the measurements. We'll do everything else as the Lord says. But we just add one or two things just to embellish things. You know, make things a bit nicer. Because we all think we know how to improve on the Lord's work, don't we? So we add our little things in. If Moses had done that, verse 34 would not have been in our Bibles. <laughs> Does the Lord have to be so specific? Does the Lord have to be so to the nth degree? The answer is yes. <laughs> Doing everything according to divine order. Sometimes we think, well, I'll add something in. The Lord hasn't said we can't. Yes, but as the Lord said, we should. Do you see what I mean? Divine order. Look to God. What is God saying? Is the Lord Jesus the head over the church? Are we doing everything according to his pattern? Moses did according to his pattern and the glory came. Once David realized his mistake concerning the ark, the ark was able to come back amongst the people of God. Glory be to his name. When the people of God function in the book of Acts under the headship of the Lord Jesus, seek God for only what he wants, the glory comes down. Now, God forbid that any of us try to make a method out of this. And we sort of try and say, well, if we do everything God says and we just try and arrange it all, then God has to come down and meet with us. No, no, no. If we do everything God says, let us be as those who recognize ourselves as unprofitable servants. We've only done what is right. But let's seek God that, in, that he would bring his glory down upon our gatherings. It's the glory that makes the difference. It's the glory that changes things. It's the presence of God that changes things. We can't change anything. It's not me becoming a better guitarist that changes things in the house of God. It's not me getting better microphones that are not so frustratingly annoying around my ears that will make things be better within the house of God. It's not a striving in our flesh to fulfill our own church doctrinal statements that will make the presence of the Lord come down. It's us being desperate for the Lord plus nothing. And to come back to his ways. And that's why I'm pointing you back to the book of Acts. I'm saying, brothers and sisters, look how they lived. Look how our, those first believers lived after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look how they ran to the upper room. Look how they didn't arrange anything. They just prayed. Look at the fact they sought God 
before they sought anything else. Look at the fact that they arranged things after they had sought God. Look at the fact that after they sought God, God poured his spirit out on the early church. And as a result of that, Peter is able to stand up with the eleven and proclaim the gospel in the power of the given spirit of God unto repentance coming to many people who were listening to him speak. What we need is to come back to the simplicity of purely crying out to God. And that's what they did in the book of Acts. Now, if you turn back to the passage that we were looking at at the very start of this message, you'll see that this theme of simply seeking God continues throughout Acts. Acts chapter 4, sorry, I said 5 earlier. Acts chapter 4. Let's look. Now, before we look at these verses, just to remind you that in chapter 3, just in case you haven't read this recently, in chapter 3, we find Peter and John meeting a lame man and that lame man being met with by their saviour, the Lord Jesus, through them. And the lame man is raised up from his lameness and he goes walking and leaping and praising God because the Lord did this glorious miracle. And as a result of that miracle that took place, there was a stirring. And as a result of the stirring, there was the proclaiming of the gospel. But we find that Peter and John got themselves into a little bit of trouble over the fact that they were proclaiming the Lord Jesus, even though all of this was a result of a man being healed. Isn't it amazing? People can be aggressive against you when you've done a good deed in the name of Jesus. Isn't it amazing? Suddenly find the jealousy comes in or them wanting you just to quiet you down. Why, they'd rather see people, some would rather see people uh, dead in the grave and not healed than the result of that healing being the proclaiming of Jesus Christ. So sad, the condition of man's heart, isn't it? But after they were spoken to by the leaders and told not to continue in such a way, we read in verse 23 that they were let go. And it says, they went to their own company, their people, the people of God, the church, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Okay? They shared the opposition that they'd faced with the church. And then we read in verse 24, and when they heard that, they decided to have an organization which they set up together to deal with opposition in the area. They were called the peacemaking team. And they sought ways to be able to gain favor with the leaders. Is that what it says? Doesn't say that, does it? But that's the sort of thing we do today. We would set up a committee. There's been some problem. There's been some opposition. We need to set up a committee. I don't know how, imagine if we knew how many committees there were throughout all the churches in the UK today. 
there have probably been more committees than there are people to go round the committees. There's probably even committees for committees and all kinds of organisations set up. It's amazing. You don't read a lot about that sort of thing happening, do you, in the book of Acts? What do we find? And when they heard that, in other words, when they heard what Peter and John had been through, through the chief priests and the elders scathing them, really, for proclaiming the name of Jesus after this lame man had been healed. It says that they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. In other words, they were all praying together. They called on the Lord together over what was happening. Imagine it. One of us, let's say, for example, somebody who does a lot of street preaching today, Ryan is among us, does a lot of street preaching today. If he went out on the streets and let's say, God forbid, that he was arrested, but it's altogether possible because of proclaiming the gospel, and then he was let free, and then he came and shared with us what happened, what would our response be? You see, it's this kind of scenario that we're going to be facing in the days ahead. We've got to know how to function when the opposition gets hotter. How did they function in the book of Acts? They lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. What a good start. First of all, they're acknowledging that those in authority are not the ultimate authority on the earth. God is above them. God is above the chief priests and the elders. God is above them all. They look to God and they point themselves to God. Thou art God which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. In other words, straight away, after this opposition, they're acknowledging that God is sovereign. God is above it all. God sees it all. God knows it's going to happen before it happens. There's a wonderful security in having a fresh revelation of the sovereignty of God. He's above all these oppositions. There are a thousand and a, upon thousand opponents to the gospel in our country. And they're growing. And they're getting into places of authority. But we must remind ourselves before we uh, allow our hearts to be filled with fear that the Lord is above every opponent of his Son. And we must remember that God has put his son on that holy hill of Zion. He cannot be toppled. He's on the throne. No matter what opposition we face, God is on the throne. He's above the opposition that the enemy is waging in your life currently. He's above the opposition that the enemy is raging in my life. But the problem is, what so often happens when we face opposition is our opposition becomes our focus and not the Lord. And we need to get our eyes back on God. Because 
What happens on the ground may be one thing, but there's another thing happening in heaven. And God is above your enemies. God is above my enemies. And he's our glory and the lifter of our heads. Get your eyes back on God, friend. Get your eyes on the one who is above every opponent and every enemy. And this is what the early church did here. And it says in verse 31, And when they had prayed and the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now I've just missed out a verse before. That was the result of their prayer. But notice what they prayed to God. Verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. Lord, you're reigning on high. You're above. There's nobody greater than you. We know that the rulers are gathered together against you and against your anointed, but you are over all. Now, Lord, would you behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. By stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. Dear friends, with the gospel, there should be the accompanying signs and wonders. I have a friend of mine uh, who um, is an evangelist. He's not in this fellowship, but is an evangelist in this country. And uh, I have the uh, privilege of being on a, on a board, an advisory board for him, for his, for his Christian organization. He goes on the streets and he believes in the power of God and he sees people healed when he proclaims the gospel. He sees it. Some of the miracles are amazing. You don't hear about them in the headlines of the news. The next day in the, in the Telegraph or the Mail, you certainly won't hear about them in the Independent or any other paper. But the fact is God is working where there's faith. And he believes the Lord and he prays for people. And some of these people are not believers. And he says, oh, can I pray with you? And they see immediately God heal them like that. And then they say, well, this is different. Then he says, right, let me bring you to the Lord Jesus then. You see, the signs and wonders are to accompany the gospel. They're not to be the focus. And the big problems with the signs and wonders movement was that the signs and wonders became the God of the movement rather than the God of the signs and wonders. And that's a sad thing when that happens. It's not as though we're simply looking every time we go out to preach to lay hands on somebody and to heal them. But we do need to remember that within this passage, notice that they ask for boldness in speaking the word and they ask the Lord to do it in a such a way by stretching forth his hand to heal. God is still wanting to heal today. God is still wanting to actually deliver people from certain ailments, isn't he? He's still wanting to... Raise people from the dead even. Such is our God. Oh, friends, these things are so small for our God. He's able to do these things. He's made the whole earth in six days. Can't he heal somebody of arthritis? Surely. This is the God we worship. This is the God we praise. So they ask God to grant them boldness to speak. 
So that's their main prayer. Lord, we faced opposition. When you're threatened like that, the immediate thing that comes into your heart is what? It's fear, isn't it? That's what you're tempted by. If you, if you do that again, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put you in chains. And believe me, prisons in these days were not, were not hotels. Okay, the, the, the possibility of Peter and John being led away, beaten, or even put in prison, whatever it was be, would not be a pleasant experience. The temptation in such situations is fear. But what do the people of God do? They don't exercise bravado. You don't see Peter and John saying to the congregation, well, we were threatened, but we don't care. We can handle these guys. Let's go out and really show them who's boss. It's nothing of that kind of bravado. Sadly, something of that attitude can come into the church these days. We're going to take over the world for Jesus. Oh, are you? I mean, it's not going to... Without the Lord, we can't do anything. And the Lord's certainly not going to help us if we've got pride in our hearts. Uh, I think there's a danger of these sort of things coming in. We've got to watch ourselves. But what do they do? They go to God. Lord, help us. We need you. We are weak, essentially, they're saying. We need your help. You are sovereign. Please, Lord, give us boldness. Just give us boldness to proclaim. If you give us boldness to proclaim and heal people, Lord God, that is what we're asking for. They're not asking to escape. They're asking for boldness to proclaim in the face of opposition. Okay. So what happens? It's very interesting. They all get filled with the Holy Ghost. Do you notice within this passage, none of them have asked specifically to be filled with the Holy Ghost? They've asked simply for boldness to proclaim the gospel. The result is that they're filled with the Holy Ghost. Why do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Oh, this is hard, isn't it? If, if you wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit so you had a boldness to proclaim the gospel, well, I think we'd all be filled with the Holy Spirit, wouldn't we? The Lord's not wanting to withhold his blessings from us, but he's often looking for right motives for why we're desiring the things that are of himself. Well, they asked for boldness, and the Lord gave him boldness. Remember what it says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear. That means a spirit of timidity. God hasn't given you a spirit of timidity. You know, oh, I've got to be careful what I'd say. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I'm witnessing to so-and-so and I say the wrong words? And then they get angry and then they never come to Jesus because I've said the wrong words. And... I've made this mistake and then I've made that mistake and oh no. And then you go through in your head all that you've said in your witnessing to your friends and you wondered how you could get it so messed up. Well, that's the spirit of timidity. God hasn't given you that. That doesn't come from God. The condemnation that comes with that hasn't come from God. And if you didn't fear the condemnation of getting it wrong, you'd have a greater boldness in proclaiming. <laughs> just be confident in the Lord and say now God hasn't given me a spirit of fear but of power and of love and a sound mind while we're constantly worried over our own evangelism to others 
We're never going to be concerned for their souls. Right. But when we get more into the realm of love, love, a real burden of love for the lost, then we're going to flow more, flow more freely in our speaking to the lost. And the Spirit of God is there to help you. You and I need the empowering of the Spirit. And what happened after they were, the place was shaken. Do you know, I think this is tremendous. Wouldn't it be great if some of our meetings were shaken a little? You know, some places you go to, you feel you literally have to raise the dead. And they're already alive. And you sort of think, oh dear, mm, come on, let's get you up. Um, you know, it's, there's this need for the Lord to revive his people again. There's a need for the people of God to once again be re-envisioned with the God that we worship, with the King that we have on the throne. Why should we be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Why are we ashamed? Unless there's unbelief in our hearts. Surely God can do it. He's looking to pour his spirit out upon us so that we have the boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes on to say in verse 32, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. I think this is a tremendous verse, and it's something that expresses what happened within the early church. Okay? The multitude of them that believed were of how many hearts? One heart and of one soul. There's a oneness. This is a characteristic that we find come out in the book of Acts time and time and time again. In fact, within the book of Acts, it comes out nine times. Nine times it speaks of the people being of one accord or of one heart or of one soul. There's a oneness that constantly comes out in the book of Acts. And it's to do with the people of God. And it's the result of the Spirit of God falling upon the people of God. What happens when the Spirit comes? The people come together. That's what happens. There's a genuine love and desire for the blessing of one and all. If you have the Spirit of God come upon you, you cannot hate your brother and your sister in the Lord. It's impossible to hate your brother and sister in the Lord if you are filled with the Holy Ghost. It's a literal impossibility. Why? Because he is the spirit of love. Okay? So then we have a barometer. Oh, so-and-so, she's such a pain. Can I be really filled with the spirit when I'm saying, no, we need to be filled with the Spirit of God. Now being filled with the Spirit of God does not mean we become blind to dangers of deception. Far from it. But we handle things the right way. We handle things the right way. We want restoration for those that are falling. We don't want condemnation to put them into the pit further. Isn't that true? Oh, come on, we know this, don't we? It's all gone very quiet on me. Perhaps I better swiftly move on. 
We need to be careful. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, weren't they? And they were of one heart and of one soul. As I mentioned, nine times it speaks of the oneness of the body in the book of Acts. And nine, it has been said in Scripture, is the number of completeness. Interesting that, isn't it? It was, it was Christ died at the what hour? The ninth hour. It is finished. Completeness. There's other meanings as well. But you see what I mean. If the church of God is one, functioning together, building each other up, spurring one another on, what a difference it would make to our own lives. Your brother next to you, your sister next to you, is not your enemy. You should be actually building each other up, stirring one another on. Say, come on, brother, come on, sister, let's get through this together. This is the oneness, their oneness of heart, oneness of purpose. Do you remember what it says in Philippians chapter 2? Paul says this, If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. That's what God wants for us. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. If there be any of these things, Paul says, is there any, is there any love? Is there any being of one accord? Is there anything of one-mindedness? How much factions there are in the church these days, aren't they? This person splits against that one. The church is torn in two. This thing happens and then somebody starts up a new denomination. This is not the way it should be within the house of God. There's only one Lord Jesus, not several. Only one. And some of you say, I'm of Apollos. Another says, I'm of Paul. And another says, I'm of Christ's. What, is Christ divided? How can it be? How does it happen? Well, the thing is that sometimes there are divisions that have to come in to prove that which is genuine. But make sure that it's the right kind of division and not the wrong kind. <laughs> God is wanting to bring his people together. One of the great things that happened within the early charismatic renewal in the 1960s and, and, and even before was that suddenly, if you were a Methodist, you started talking to a Baptist. Isn't it amazing? You started to get people out of their denominational bunkers and realize that we're all the people of God who are born again of the Spirit of God. And if Christ has received a brother, how can I not receive him? No, I don't like you. But the Lord has received me. Yes, but you're not my type. What do you, what do you mean I'm not your type? Well, just I don't know really. You just wind me up. Just go to another church. You know, that kind of attitude. Where is that in the Word of God? The great thing about the church is that you can get Jew and Gentile together in the same body. This is the miracle. No male and female, no slave or free, all one in the Lord Jesus. 
Amazing. This is the body of Messiah, friends. Oh, how we need the Lord. How we need the Lord to deliver us from wrong attitudes, don't we? Do you know, I think of the Lord Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17 of chapter 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them which also shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. How's the world going to believe? By the oneness of the body of Messiah. Now, this is where we need to take heed. You see, the enemy is very clever. Have you begun to realize the enemy is very clever? He begins to bring into the church another type of oneness. That is not the oneness that Jesus spoke of, but sounds like the oneness that Jesus spoke of. It's called ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement. It's a type of unity. It's a type of oneness. But it's something that the enemy has orchestrated mimicking the reality of the true oneness in the Lord Jesus. Now, why does Satan do it? Because he knows if there's true oneness within the church, Jesus' way, there's going to be trouble for his kingdom. So he doesn't try to stop people getting into oneness. He just produces another type that looks the same, that seems the same, but actually is of a different origin. And so we start saying, well, we're all one in the Lord Jesus. It doesn't matter if we're Catholic or it doesn't matter if we're from the Mormon church or it doesn't matter if we're this or that. We're just all one in Jesus because Jesus said that we should all be one. But that's not the oneness Jesus is speaking of. That's a, that's a humanistic Oneness that the enemy is quite happy to orchestrate. It's something God never initiated. He said, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. So our oneness is dependent on our conformity to the written word of God. But there's another danger. We can get so taken up with the ecumenical movement that we almost consider being one or unity as wrong words. It's like revival. We often think of revival and we think, oh, that's, we shouldn't use that word anymore. Because there's so many false revivals that have gone on around the world. Well, there are false revivals. But the enemy produces false revivals because he doesn't want there to be a genuine, real revival within the church. 
The enemy only masquerades that which is truly of worth to God in order to stop people coming into the genuine. He's not going to mimic something that is no threat to his kingdom whatsoever. He's only going to mimic that which is of worth to get people away from the genuine. So we have false moves considered to be moves of the Holy Spirit which draw a whole lot of saints away from believing in the baptism of the Spirit because they view the baptism of the Spirit now in the same camp as the false revival so they don't believe in that power anymore so they have no power to stand anymore. Satan has done it. What about unity? Well, the ecumenical movement. We just get this going and, it, and then people realize, well, we just want to be, we don't want to get into all that ecumenicism. I think the best thing is that I'm just at home by myself. At least I can't be deceived that way by somebody up the front. And anyway, there's no decent churches anyway. I'm going to meet with myself and YouTube because I know I won't be deceived that way. And that's my little church. And though immediately into another deception. Never allow what is genuine to become something negative to you because the enemy has produced something artificial against the genuine. Don't ever allow that to happen. Let me give you, don't ever be somebody who despises prophecy because you've seen false prophecy. Don't ever be somebody who despises the gifts of tongues because you've seen the abuse of the gift of tongues. Don't be somebody that says, no, we can't work towards oneness in the Lord Jesus because of the ecumenical movement. No, no, no. There's a genuine oneness. There's a oneness in the Spirit of God that we all can share that will be the means of the building up of this house. We do need unity. We do. We really do. Psalm 133, our sister Linda mentioned this in the pre-service prayer meeting. Psalm 133. Psalm 133. And verse 1. A song of degrees of David. Right. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in opposition. No. In unity. What is it like, David? Well, let me tell you. It is like the precious ointment or oil upon the head. Now was touching on the matter of anointing. You see the worth of this type of unity. David is associating the unity of brethren with the oil of anointing. That is a high thing for us to take on board. It is like the precious ointment or oil upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. Notice, dear friends, it didn't touch his flesh. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Where there's real genuine unity, there's life. 
and it's eternal. Well, do you know, brothers and sisters, these are things that we cannot work up of ourselves. But as you and I get closer to the Lord, we will get closer to one another. As I seek God and seek to put in my life right the things that God shows me, and you do the same, we will know a greater fellowship with one another. We all have fallen short. We're all in the business of being repaired, being salvaged from what we were. Let me end back in Acts chapter 4. Coming to a close. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. This is tremendous. You see, brothers and sisters, there was such a oneness here. The people of God actually met together daily. You you can forget just a Sunday morning. The people of God met daily. It really struck me, actually, when I looked in the book of Hebrews, and I've been meditating through there, that it speaks of exalting one another Daily, not once a week on a Sunday. And I suddenly clicked recently, why is it that people fall away from the faith? Very often because we don't meet daily. We don't see one another regularly enough to keep one another on the straight and narrow and be accountable to one another. Well, you say it's impossible for us to meet regularly together because I'm out the door by five having to catch the train for work. I understand that, but we should be in contact with one another. We have resources that they didn't have in those days. We have something called a mobile phone, okay? Most of us do anyway. And maybe allow the Lord to do it, but just ask God, Lord, who can I text just to give a word of encouragement today to that brother or that sister? And you may say, Yeah, but I'm often the one who needs the text. Well, don't worry about it. Send the text to somebody else and ask them to forward it back to you and then you get the blessing of it, don't you? So just do that. So the more we look outward away from ourselves to others, the more we'll be blessed, won't we? And and it says they had all things in common. You know, when we were at the camp, some of us were at the camp in the summer, it was such a wonderful experience because we were all together in these tents with winds reaching unbelievable miles per hour. And tents were going here, there, and everything. There was problems, and there was rain and everything. But we were all in one another's um, abodes, so to speak. And we found ourselves helping each other out daily, particularly people helping us out daily, because we were really struggling with our tent that wasn't working properly due to the high winds. But people came to our aid, and we had, it felt like we had all things in common. And it was such a wonderful experience. And then I sort of think, that must have been how it must have been with the early church. They were like together. They had all things in common. Now, we need to be those, don't we, that share with one another, encourage one another with words, maybe even financially helping one another out. But whatever it may be, just to be there, maybe just to even hear somebody say they've got an issue in their life they want to talk with somebody about. That's the way the body of Christ is to function. You know we're to esteem others as better than ourselves, and then it's good sometimes when we we get away from our own problems and we begin to see our brother and sister's needs. That's when our eyes are open to... Other, people, other people's needs. 
I mean, I remember, um, I think it was Helena came home with us with, with a, what do you call it, an, ana- an acronym? J O Y, where you got the. It's a song, it's a song. It's, it's, J O, it's a children's song, isn't it? Did Fiona make it up? She learned it from Fiona, uh, Fiona White, Simon White's wife. She, she had this song which is uh, called Joy and just takes, the first, uh, just takes each letter. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And that's the way to joy. It often is. It often is. Most of our depression comes from self-centeredness. I mean, I just speak by experience. I have to tell you. That often I can be depressed when I'm just focused on poor old little me. When I should be thinking about my brothers and sisters. Well, this is the way the body is to function, friends. Now, imagine if every one of us esteemed each other as better than ourselves. We'd all go out the door with too much blessings on our head. We wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Well, the Lord can do it. He can bring us to a place. But you see, it's unto a purpose. It's not just for our sakes. It's so that when the unbeliever comes in, they see what love we have. They see how different we are, how we function differently. That's what God wants us to do. Coming to an end, verse 35. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. If you want to proclaim the gospel, you'll need the grace of God. God's grace speaks not only of his unmerited favor, but it speaks of his divine enabling. Then verse 34, neither was there any among them that lacked. Isn't that a marvelous thing? Spiritually speaking, you may feel you lack in a particular area. That's what the rest of the body of Christ is there to try and help you with. One with another. We're not there to compete with each other's spiritualness. We're there to aid one another, and be there for one another so that not one of us is lacking. None of us are to lack. God doesn't want you to lack in the church. He wants you to be able to come through. Maybe it takes a little bit of courage, but speak to a brother or sister you have confidence in that you can share your problem with. And pray together. This is the way forward, isn't it? Then he goes on to say this. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. I'm going to end with this particular verse. Distribution was made unto every man according as he had need need. Distribution, it can be, as it was in this case, financial, but there can be other needs. There can be other needs. Are we meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters? Distribution is needed. Perhaps a place within the church, you feel the Lord's putting it on your heart to work in a particular area of church life. Then as you give out, there is a distribution of your, your aid which enables other brothers and sisters to be able to function in their place. But if you and I are not functioning, other brothers and sisters will have to cover that place and they get stretched further, don't they? Do you know what I mean? So each one of us needs to just know the place that God has for us within the body. And it's not something that we simply arrange. It's something that God does in us. 
I don't believe in just putting up a list of things that need to be done in the church and then finding somebody just to tick it off. I'm more interested in the Lord laying the burden on the heart of the servant of God. But all I'm saying is if God has laid you on your heart a particular place to fill where you could be used in a particular form of distribution to another brother or sister or a need within the body, then seek to fulfill it. Just have confidence in the Lord. Have faith. The Lord can help you. It may be giving a lift to somebody. You know you've got the car and it works. <laughs> At least for now. And then, and then you know, well, that sister, she does have a struggle getting to church. And the Lord just seems to lay it on my heart. You distribute your knee, your, your, um, what you have, your car. You're distributing something to help another brother or sister get somewhere. And to move on with the Lord. Well, isn't the church different in the book of Acts sometimes from the way we see things now? And I'm not pointing the finger at anybody else. I'm talking about any of us. God wants us to do things according to divine order, his way. And if we do things his way, none shall lack. Because as David said, the Lord is my shepherd. You see, if the Lord shepherds this flock, then none of us will lack. But the glorious thing is, the Lord brings us into the tremendous privilege of being part of the giving out of his blessings to others. May the Lord help us all to be the body of the Lord Jesus. May it be when people come in, they don't see a group of people gathered together simply with a common interest. They see the Lord Jesus in us, flowing through us, Meeting us. Meeting the Lord Jesus in us. What a tremendous passage of scripture this is. May the Lord just simply write on our heart what has been of him. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we've spoke for a long time on this particular theme today. And thank you for giving grace, Lord, to listen to this message and thank you for giving grace to speak it. Father, we ask that that which has been of yourself would remain with all of us. And that which has been of myself would just graciously be, Lord, forgotten. We call on you, Lord, because we need you. Help us to be a praying people, a people that seek you. And know your boldness in our witness. We look to you for all these things. We ask that you'd help us, Lord, even as we fellowship together over lunch, that we would be a blessing to one another. Please help us, Lord, to be mindful of one another's needs. And we ask, Father, even as we meet later, for those of us who can, to pray that you would give us the strength and the enabling to pray according to your purpose and your desire. So thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. Lord, please keep only that which has been of yourself with us, we pray. Pardon the rest, we ask. Anything not right, Lord, pardon it, I pray. And let us just know that meditation on what you have brought to our hearts. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.